Uh, Merry Christmas. Um, okay, I blame my brother for this. Okay, Andrew, he read this book years ago by Tom Clancy called Patriot Games. And uh, he was a big Tom Clancy fan, and then the movie came out, and he's like, oh, you got to watch this. He knew I wasn't going to read the book. And so we watched this movie, and that scene right there terrorized me as a young man. It was all I could think about. I loved the movie, but it was bone-chilling to think about going through something like that. That a house full of armed terrorists with night vision had killed the lights in my house, and I was trying to avoid them completely unarmed myself. I hated that scene, and I, I chalk it up to um, today, and Jenny can vouch for me on this, I'm freaked out by any kind of movie that has like an intense scene like that, where you don't know if they're going to make it, and especially if a child is involved. I need to read the Wikipedia summary of the plot to know if the child makes it. If they don't, I don't want to watch it. I'm not going to watch it. I just, I don't want to go to the theater. We saw a movie, I'm not going to tell you which one, a couple years ago, and well, she saw it. I stared at the floor through at least 85% of that movie because I don't like those scenes. And so I blame Andrew for, for terrorizing me with that movie that you just saw right there. I always hated thinking about going through it. And now, as a parent, uh, it's even worse. Because I think about being in that scenario and having to take care of my child unarmed while people are coming to try to do them harm. And the thought of seeing them harmed kills me. And I had all of these thoughts already. I already had those emotions before what you just saw became reality on October 7th for so many Israeli families. Let me read this to you. Um, I know you are aware of what happened on October 7th. Lee Sassy says she and her friends arrived to the Israeli music festival near Gaza and were dancing. We were taking pictures and then we just saw up in the sky what looked like fireworks. And then we realized it wasn't fireworks. And we ran to the car, and as we ran, we were running with our cousin, who came in a separate car, and we went our separate ways. I went with my uncle and my other cousin. I remembered on the way to the party that there was a bomb shelter. If you don't know how this works for people in Israel, if they're within, I think it's something like five to ten miles of the Gaza border, it is the law of the country you have to have a bomb shelter because they're just used to rockets being fired from Gaza all the time. So it's required by the state that you have a bomb shelter. They're all over the place there. So she says, I remember a, a bomb shelter on our way, so I remember the direction of it. I directed my uncle where to go. She said there were already around 35 people in the bomb shelter when she and her uncle and her cousin got there. They huddled inside until all of a sudden they heard Hamas terrorists burst into the bomb shelter shouting. There were three people, including our friend Alex, who came with us. And he stood up front guarding the entryway of the bomb shelter. The terrorists immediately started shooting at everyone who was in front. Maybe 10 people fell down instantly in front of my eyes, including my friend Alex. Then they started throwing grenades. We were trapped in the bomb shelter, so they threw grenades, and when the grenade fell, I saw my uncle blow up right in front of my face, trying to protect me. The group inside the shelter waited about seven hours for help to finally arrive, which Lee said felt like an eternity. She explained, every time rockets fired, more Israelis ran for the bomb shelters, where they encountered the terrorists who shot them. As they were shooting us like target practice, they were laughing. They were excited. They were so excited in their voices, so joyful, like they were eager to kill us. Lee's pregnant cousin went to a different bomb shelter and is still missing. The family fears that she was kidnapped after seeing a chilling video of her husband getting shot to death as he's running out of the bomb shelter hoping to lead them away from others. As Lee hid out of her bomb shelter, she decided her best chance of survival was to hide underneath a pile of bodies of those who had already been killed by Hamas fighters. 
She laid there, hearing death-leveling people on every side of her, covered with the dead bodies of her friends, afraid to even breathe for a little over four hours. When help finally arrived, she didn't trust it. She thought it could be a trap. It wasn't until the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, began removing the dead bodies that they discovered her alive. I cannot imagine going through something like that. I, I, I honestly can't even fathom that. Hiding under the dead bodies of my friends, being scared to even breathe, knowing that people who are wanting to destroy me, it's like, it's like that scene in the movie, except it's playing out in real life. So why in the world am I talking about this? I know that's the question on, I'm not even going to say 99% of your minds, I'm going to say 100% of your minds. Why in the world, when we're kicking off a Christmas series, I mean, look at the bulletin cover. Did you see what it said? Joy to all men. It's not really the, the note I'm hitting right now. I don't think, right? There's nothing remotely joyful about this. Anything that I've said, it seems wildly inappropriate that as we kick off a Christmas series, I show you a, a terrifying scene from Patriot Games, and I read you this horrific story of real life that just occurred in Israel. Wildly inappropriate. Patriot Games is not a Christmas movie, just like Die Hard. It's not a Christmas movie, right? I'm not going to have the debate with you, but it's not. And this that I just read, that is no Christmas story. That's not the stuff that we talk about at Christmas time. What should we be talking about? Well, what do we typically talk about when it comes to Christmas? Well, there's two different versions of this. We can have the secular version of Christmas, and Christmas to us is lights and it's family and it's carriage rides. Some of you are into that, like riding behind a horse that has gas and it's just right there in your face. Maybe you're into that. And trees that we decorate and snow falling and presents. That's what Christmas is. That's the materialistic side. But you know, um, like the the choir concert is this week and so if you go to that choir concert you're going to hear several minutes hours and hours and hours of up on the housetop reindeer paws we got reindeers and we got santas and we got snowmen and then they'll shift gears and they'll hit the religious section and i love it that eastern still does that and so what do we talk about when we talk about religious side of christmas well you know go to walmart and buy the little nativity set you got the wise men that are there and the shepherds and the little animals that surround the manger You've got the baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph and a star. This is the stuff we talk about at Christmas or, or this stuff. Or maybe I do a sermon about how we don't focus too much on this stuff and let's focus more on this stuff. That's what you talk about at Christmas. And what I've talked about to this point is bizarre and for some of you probably really off-putting. You didn't think you were going to come and see a clip from Patriot Games to start off a Christmas series. It's bizarre and off-putting. And I have one thing to say to all of you. To tell me that the way I started this Christmas season is bizarre and off-putting. You know what I have to say to you? Take it up with the gospel writer Luke. If you got a problem starting off the Christmas season talking about the horrors of life, take it up with the gospel writer Luke. His is the Christmas gospel, right? We all know that. He's the Christmas gospel writer. He's the one that you read every Christmas season to your kids or your grandkids if you do that on Christmas Eve. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. That's Luke 2. He is the Christmas gospel writer. But do you know how he starts the story of God's coming to earth in human flesh? Do you know how he begins this? Who is the first person that is introduced in his account of God's incarnation coming to earth? You're going to get mad at me about the way I start this. How does Luke start it all? By the way, it's not Caesar Augustus. That's Luke 2. He doesn't start in Luke 2. He starts in Luke 1. Who is the first person? 
person that is introduced to the reader in Luke chapter 1. Well, I'm not going to tell you. Look it up. Luke chapter 1, let's do this. Luke chapter 1, and I want you to hear what he says. This is him introducing God's coming to earth, breaking the 400 years of silence. I'll pick it up in verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus is like a Roman official who has come to be a believer. And so Luke is writing to him to explain, as he says, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. That's the intro. Now look at verse 5. And tell me the first person introduced into this account. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. The first person that's introduced there is King Herod. Now, when you hear that, I don't know what it is that you think of. But I can tell you what the people who are reading this thought of. The people who knew who King Herod was. Sort of like you know who Donald Trump was. You know who Barack Obama was. You know those people. And you have, immediately th you have immediate thoughts about them when I say their name. Those people reading the words of Luke as Luke is announcing God's coming to earth. The fulfillment of all of these prophecies. The first name he mentions is King Herod. Do you know who this guy is? King Herod, here's what I'm guessing you know. If you listened to me a few weeks ago, you know that he's a descendant of Esau. You remember you had Jacob and Esau, and Jacob's name became Israel, and those were the Jewish people. Well, this is a descendant of Esau. And the Maccabeans, and I don't want to get into all the history, but the Maccabeans forced the descendants of Esau, his group, to become Jews. So they're kind of like just sucked in and forced to become Jews. They're not real Jews to a lot of Jewish people. But he's a descendant of Esau. And secondly, we know that he is Herod the Great. Maybe you knew that. Herod the Great. And they call him Herod the Great because he built a lot of stuff. He was a great builder. That's probably, and maybe some of you know that he ordered the execution of kids, which we're going to get to in just a second. But for the most part, that's all you know about Herod. And now it's time for a history lesson. And you love it. All right, so here's what's going on. Rome dominated the world. Imagine in your head, this will be easy, that the United States dominates the known world. Okay, that's what Rome did. Now for us, the known world is the entire globe. So imagine the United States conquered the entire earth. Now it's going to be difficult with the size of the American military to control all of the territory on earth. So what would the United States do? We would set up vassal kingdoms. And these people can rule. The, the people in Central Africa, they'll set up their own governments. But those governments are going to be answerable to who? To us, the United States. You can have your own local governments. And they're going to be vassal rulers who are our puppets. And they're under our authority. That's what Rome had done. They conquered the known world, but they allowed these little regional ethnic groups to govern themselves and have their own kings and all of that, as long as, ultimately, they answered to Roman authority. That's why when Jesus gets executed and he goes through his trial, he stands trial before the Jewish king, but they can't carry out a death sentence. In order to carry out a death sentence, they had to get the approval of who? Rome. So he goes and he stands trial before Pilate. That's the way this is all set up. That isn't even the history part yet. Now, let's talk about the history part. In Rome, you got Julius Caesar who's ruling Rome. You got me? Julius Caesar is in charge of Rome and he gets murdered. You remember et tu, Brute, that whole Brutus thing? So Brutus betrays Julius Caesar and Cassius kills him. And so now Julius Caesar is out of the picture. And Cassius wants to rule over all of Rome. But he's defeated. He's defeated by a guy named Mark Antony. Not the singer. Isn't there a Mark?
Um, yeah, not him, okay? It's a totally different guy. Mark Antony co-rules Rome with this dude named Octavian. You're still with me. Julius Caesar, dead. And Cassius, who killed him, is defeated by Mark Antony, and Mark Antony teams up with Octavian, and they co-rule the Roman world. Nobody's asleep yet, right? You're still with me, yes? Good, okay. Uh, Mr. We Care guy down here was telling me, I was up really early and up really late, so if I start to fade, it's not, it is your fault, so stay awake. Anyway, Antony then rules, I, I just view it as your commitment to Jesus, if you can't stay with us. Anyway, okay, so Antony co-rules with Octavian over Rome. Herod, this guy that we're talking about, is a great politician. You know the smooth politician talking types. And, and Herod kind of butters up Mark Antony and gets in good with Mark Antony, who then says, all right, yeah, you're kind of Jewish. We'll put you in charge of this kingdom where there's a lot of Jews, the kingdom of Judea. So now Herod is ruling over the kingdom of Judea because his best friend is one of the co-rulers of Rome. You're still with me? Good, excellent. Then a civil war breaks out in Rome. The two guys that are co-ruling don't want to co-rule anymore. They both want to rule Rome. And so there's the Mark Antony forces and there's the Octavian forces. Who do you suppose Herod's going to be with? Right, good. I'm glad you're listening. He's going to be with Mark Antony because that's the guy that he had the ear of and had put him in charge of stuff. Well, the problem for him is that Octavian wins this civil war. Octavian wins, takes over Rome, and changes his own name to Caesar Augustus. You with me now? Oh, yes. This is fascinating, right? Okay. So anyway, so Caesar Augustus is now in charge, and it looks like this could be the end for Herod. Because typically, if you're supporting one guy and he loses the civil war, it's not going to end too well for you. You're on the wrong side. Well, Herod is a great politician. And so what Herod does is, despite being on the side of Antony in this conflict... Butters up Augustus, and he goes in and says, listen, between you and me, I always thought Mark Antony was a woo -hoo. but I had to support him because, you know, he had appointed me and all of that, but with as loyal as I was to him, I will be ten times more loyal to you. You can trust me, and it worked. Augustus says, you know what, all right, you can stay in charge, and I'm even going to expand your kingdom. That's how Herod got to rule. This made the Romans love Herod, because Herod is their puppet, which is exactly what they want, but the Jewish people living under Herod they don't like him. They see him as a betrayer of the Jewish people, a puppet of Rome, and they don't like Rome. That's who this is. So Herod is living in a constant fear that there will be a revolt, that the Jewish people who don't like him are going to revolt against him. So yeah, he built a lot of great stuff, but the vast majority of the stuff that he built were these massive fortresses. So wherever he was in his kingdom, if there was a revolt, he could retreat to there and properly defend himself. That's what he's building. It's him. That is King Herod. And just like every tyrant, Herod is massively paranoid. Every tyrant throughout history. If you want a great, a, a modern day example of the kind of guy we're talking about, it's not Hitler, it'd be Stalin. If you know anything about Stalin, the dude's five foot four. He's got little man syndrome. And so because he's five foot four, he's constantly paranoid people are going to rebel against him. He just viciously treats everyone near him. Just like Stalin, he was so, Herod is so insecure that he has his wife killed. He had ten wives, but his favorite wife, here's what Herod thought. I really love her. I've always really loved her, but look at what happened to Julius Caesar. It's always somebody that's close to you that betrays you. And so who is closest to me? It's my favorite wife. She's going to be the one. I can't run the risk. Kill her. And that's what he does. That is how paranoid this guy is. Not only that, he takes out three of his sons because he was paranoid. These guys, they were close to him. And they're too close to him. I don't trust it. 
him and kill him. Eh, that one looked at me wrong. Kill him too. That is how paranoid Herod is. Even Rome, and you know how brutal Rome is. They're amazed how brutal Herod is. Caesar Augustus has this line. You know, the Jewish people don't eat pigs. They don't, they, they don't touch pigs and all of that pork. And Augustus is, uh, once remarked that it's better to have been Herod's pig than his son. He's not going to touch his pigs, but if you're his son, he'll kill you. Even Rome was amazed at how vicious Herod was. That's who we're talking about. Herod saw plots around every corner and he was desperate, like every tyrant, for love and for respect. How desperate? When he was 70, he's 70 years old, which is pretty old, he's in really bad shape. Let me read to you how bad shape he is. This isn't in the scriptures, this is uh, extra biblical history. You're going to really enjoy this. You think I'm already not talking about Christmas stuff, wait till you hear this. This is, you're going to want to go have a Christmas feast after this. Herod died a miserable man with a miserable death, his symptoms recorded for posterity. Ten wives and a reputation for promiscuity led to untreatable venereal disease. So he had STDs, rampant STDs. It would be accompanied by deterioration of the heart and the kidneys. Those conditions prevented bodily poisons from being excreted properly, and it allowed them to accumulate in his blood, causing intense itching, sharp, constant abdominal pain, diarrhea, and possible ulceration of the bowels. In extreme cases, which according to historical record is plainly evident, what Herod was, was dealing with, the male reproductive organ could become distended and gangrenous, at which point a lesion might well become infested with maggots that would eat away at the flesh day and night until death. <laughs> Fa-la-la-la-la. All right, so this is, this is what Herod is dealing with, okay? Now, Herod clearly if that's his condition, he knows that his death is imminent. It is on the horizon. And he was so paranoid. He was worried nobody would mourn when he died. That, that's what he's thinking about. I mean, he's in that condition and he's worried when I die, people are going to be happy that I died because they don't like me. I don't like that. Oh, how will history remember me then? I want people to mourn when I die. But he knows nobody likes him. So do you know what this guy does? Even Stalin doesn't do something like this. Herod sends his guards into all of the villages that he ruled, and he found the most well-respected, genial, kind, popular dudes, arrests them, brings them to the palace, and issues a decree that when he dies, all of those men are publicly executed. Not for anything that they did. They didn't do anything wrong. But he knew how loved they were, and so in his mind, if they all die the same day as me, the entire kingdom will be in mourning. And every year on the anniversary of my death, everybody will mourn. Even if it's not for me, it'll look that way. That's how crazy this guy is. That's how nutty this guy is. So with someone that crazy paranoid that we've now established, I want you to go to Matthew chapter 2. I want you to read Matthew chapter 2 with me through the lens now of understanding how nutty this guy Herod actually is. Are you there? Look at the first eight verses of Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, remember that's the kingdom Herod rules, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? All right, right there. What is Herod going to do? He's what? Born king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. Who are you talking about? This massively paranoid. Probably killed another son when he heard that. Okay? Um, we saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. 
When King, King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. That's probably the biggest understatement in the world. And all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ, that is the Messiah, okay, where is this Messiah? I remember in Jewish history, uh, your, your little prophets and stuff, they talked about a coming Messiah. So go back and look and see where the prophet said he was going to be born. I want to know where this was supposed to happen. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Okay, you know, I think most of you probably know, that even though we put the wise men at the manger scene, that they weren't really there. We kind of talk about this yearly, that it's a nice little thing for your Walmart nativity set, but they're coming from the east. They're not going to go on a bullet train and ride there the night of. It's going to take them time to get there. So by the time they get there, uh, Jesus is a couple years old. I mean, he's been, he's a, he's a child now. So by the time they get there, Herod's wanting to know, when did you see the star? Why would he want to know that? Because he wants to know how old of a kid he needs to be looking for. The star is going to appear when this Messiah is born. So I want to know how long ago did you see the star? Therefore, I know how old of a kid we are actually looking for. And by the way, the Magi will tell them, will tell him, eh, it's about two years ago. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go, make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, obviously, we know he's not going to go and worship him. You read it through this lens of who Herod was and you realize a little bit more how nutty and how crazy the scene would have played out. So what do the Magi do? They go and they find the child and they worship him. They give him the gifts. And then what happens? One of the most horrific moments in, in recorded history in the scriptures. Look ahead to verse 12. Okay, verse 12. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, the Magi returned to their country by another route. They're not going to go back to Herod. And why? Well, here's what Herod does when he realizes that the Magi aren't coming back. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And when a nutty uh, on the verge of death Ridden with diseases, massively paranoid guy finds out and gets furious. What is he going to do? He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So they told him it was about two years ago. Fine, we will go and kill every boy in this kingdom. That's how paranoid he was. Moms holding their babies, hiding in a closet. And the soldiers come busting in and murder the baby in their arms. All across Judea, that's what happens. And that's what was said through the prophet Jeremiah. It was fulfilled. A voice in Ramah, weeping, is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel, who is the favorite wife of Jacob, she's seen here, pictured here as kind of the mother of all of the Hebrews. Rachel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. That's sorrow, is what that is. This is unimaginable stuff. This is what I started off with. Stuff that I can't imagine happening to me. Reading that story out of Israel, I can't imagine hiding under dead bodies trying to avoid people who are stalking me and wanting to kill me. It's like Patriot Games is what it is. It's like a Hamas attack. That's what it is. And when Luke announces to people that this is in the time of King Herod, that is what they think of. The terror and the fear associated with the rule of King Herod. We don't associate any of this stuff, any of that, with Christmas. 
Every year, we don't associate it with Christmas. We don't talk about that stuff. We hide it away. We don't address it, or we address it in passing. We don't preach on it. We don't acknowledge it. How do I know this? Go to Walmart, one of those nativity sets. You know who doesn't appear in the nativity set? You never find a little uh, King Herod figure, sweaty, from the STDs. You don't see him and put him up on the, on the mantle, issuing decrees to lop people's heads off. You don't see that in a Walmart nativity set. Uh, it doesn't fit. That's not the story of Christmas. Watch a kid's Christmas pageant. I mean, I don't know. Shelly, we can ask her. But uh, when I came to the Jerome preschool events, no little preschool kid got cast as the dude dying from a venereal disease. I don't think that's part of the play. Nobody's kid gets cast as King Herod. We don't talk about him. He's not involved in that. Go to Hallmark and pick out a Christmas card. You find any? A voice is heard in Ramah. Do you see any of those? Weeping for her children who are no more. That's not one of the popular verses on the Hallmark cards. Listen to the hymns that Kyle will pick this month for Christmas. None of them talk about the slaughter of innocent babies. Why? Because that isn't Christmas. We push that to the side. We hold that stuff off. That's not it. It's not a surprise that we skip this part of Christmas every year. Because in our minds, tragedies don't belong at Christmas time. You remember the tsunami that happened in 2004? It was the Christmas tsunami. All right, 2004, hundreds of thousands of people wiped out on the other side of the earth. Answer me a question. Every Christmas season that rolls around for them, the people that were affected by that, what are they going to think of? That's what they're going to think of. I mean, we can pretend like, oh, Christmas is a great time. Is it a great time for the, hundred, the millions of people that were impacted by that? No, it's not a great time. It's a memory of that. Last night, I got a little teary because I got a text message from Cheryl Dean. Cheryl Dean was the former secretary at Eastern. She's now on the school board at Eastern. I love that woman. And she sent me a text and said, my heart is broken. She lost her son, her oldest son, Ryan. He died yesterday. It was my brother's age. Ryan graduated with my brother. And he died of, of cancer. Now you answer me, every Christmas season, what's it going to be like for Cheryl? What is, she, what is she going to think of at Christmas time? All the, oh, look at the neat streets and the way they check. No, she's going to think about this. Um, Henry Edwards that just died in our community. I had Eli in class. And Josh, I teach with him. He's a football coach at Eastern. Well, what's this season going to be? Thanksgiving season and Christmas season going to be like for him? That's what I'm saying. Friends who lost loved ones. Maybe you get a devastating diagnosis at the holidays. And what are we supposed to do? Well, that's not Christmas time. Push all that stuff off till January. We'll deal with that in January. But right now, we're going to focus on all the great stuff about Christmas. And everybody that's suffering is just supposed to put on a happy face and pretend like, oh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's no big deal. We do. We create this fakeness around the holiday season. I watched one of those stupid Hallmark movies. Jenny turned it on last night. It's, the, it's got Freddie Prince Jr. in it. I'm telling you right now, if you see that one, for the love of all that is holy, do not watch that. You will want to your eyes out with a fork. It was terrible. But that's what we do. We create this fake season. Oh, this is what the holiday season is. And everybody feels good. Although I've always noticed that the guy who is the fiancé in those movies, whose wife or wife-to-be goes home to settle her accounts and then meets her old boyfriend who's the farmer in town, it never works out for Mr. Guy in the cities very well. But nobody thinks about him. Anyway, but that's what we create. We create this fakeness around the holidays where we pretend that None of the bad stuff is actually happening. And that image of moms holding their children in the closet, covering their mouths, trying to keep them quiet. The moms trying desperately not to weep too loud so that the soldiers hear. Praying that somehow the soldiers that are sweeping their house 
And that the moment they find them are going to rip that baby out and chop the baby's head off right in front of the grieving mother. What about that? What do we do, what, what, what do, we do with that? I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 2. I want to tell you this has changed how I read this passage. I can't avoid thinking of this. Matthew chapter 2, look at verses 13 through 15. This is after the Magi had been warned in a dream to go the other direction. Look at this. When they had gone, when the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. All right, so every time I've read this before, I sit here and say, oh, whew, Jesus made it. I'm glad the angel spoke and I'm glad Joseph obeyed. He listened to the word of the Lord and he saved Jesus. But now, you know what I kind of stop and think about and I can't avoid thinking? I sit here and think, why didn't you warn all the other moms? I mean, it's great that you warn Mary and Joseph, but what about all those other moms that are going to see children be murdered in front of them? They're faithful Jews. Why didn't you send an angel to warn them and at least give them a fighting chance? And here's the thing, I can't answer that question. I don't know the answer, but I do know this. What it's telling me is that even the birth of the king does not stop the suffering of the world. The suffering continues. It continued for them and in a very real way, and it continues for us in a very real way. Even the birth of the king doesn't stop the suffering of the world, but Christians, it does signal that the solution to the suffering of the world has now arrived on scene. That's what it does tell us. That's why even though I get it, I understand why we do it, we should not leave the tragedy out of the Christmas story. It's wrong of us to leave the tragedy. Yes, we always talk about it. we got to keep Christ in Christmas. Great, let's keep Christ in Christmas, obviously. But let me suggest to you to keep Herod in Christmas. Herod needs to be a part of this story. The part of the story that we leave out every season, the sadness and the sorrow, is very important for us to understand because it's the part of the story that explains why this birth that we celebrate was so necessary. The tragedy tells us why Jesus is coming to earth. The promise of Christmas isn't for silent nights and it's not for peaceful stables. You know who the promise of Christmas is for? It's for those screaming mothers who are terrified in closets. That's who the promise of Christmas is for. That yes, suffering is here and suffering is for a time, but the solution has arrived on the scene. That's who it's for. It's for those people who, who, whose lives, they've, they've lost the people who are the most important to them in their lives. That's who the promise of Christmas is for. It's for those who feel hopeless at this time of year. The, the people who are going through the suffering and the tragedy. You know what Luke is teaching us here? Here's what Luke is teaching us. That Jesus was born into the real world. Not the fake world that we create. Not the hallmark version of Christmas. He wasn't, yeah, he was born into a silent stable. But the world around him had all of the suffering that you and I are experiencing. And that's what Luke is saying. In the days of Herod, when all of this awful stuff was happening, it's in the middle of horror and tragedy and suffering and sorrow, that's when God sent Jesus to earth. Where women are abused and killed. 
That's the world that Jesus was born into. Where men drowned in tsunamis and violent storms. That's the world that Jesus was born into. Where babies are slaughtered by Herods and Hitlers. That's the world that Jesus was born into. And we need to remember that. He came to radically change the trajectory of a world that was going down the proverbial toilet. That is the story of Christmas. Where he came to upend evil with goodness. Or he changes everything. He confronts the hatred of man's inhumanity to man with the goodness of God. Or he comes to defy violence, peace, and to rectify sin with salvation. That is what we're celebrating. God's joy expressed in the coming of Christ is deeper than our sadness and our sorrow. I'll say that again. I want you to hear this. This is why Luke mentions the days of Herod. Because what he's saying is that God's joy expressed in the coming of his son Jesus Christ is deeper than all of the sadness that mankind is experiencing. Christmas is a confirmation that life in the end is more powerful than death. And you know what else it is? It is a reminder to all of us. Flip one page over in Matthew. It is a reminder to all of us, not just the people then, of what was said by the prophet Isaiah, quoted by the gospel writer in Matthew Look at verse 16. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. He's writing these words and the people who are hearing these words, they live in the land of the shadow of death. They live in the darkness because they live in the days of Herod. They live in a day where where moms are terrified and holding their babies and soldiers are killing them in their arms. And the prophet has said, and Matthew is saying, in the midst of all that, a light has dawned. So listen, some of you are living in the land of the shadow of death right now. Well, we all are in many ways. But some of you are experiencing the darkness more than others. And it's only going to get worse in the next couple weeks. I need you to know, and I need you to hear what the prophet said, what Matthew confirmed, and what I will stake my entire existence and soul upon. That in the midst of that darkness, Christians, a light has dawned. Father God, I thank you for this season. I thank you in the midst of our sorrow and in the midst of our suffering. You changed everything. Help us not to gloss over the pain that is the reality of life here on earth. And that reality doesn't change for 31 days in December. The reality of suffering in this world is the reality of sin and we are mired in it and there is only one solution and you have provided it. You provided it in the form of a baby in a manger who would grow in in strength and wisdom into a man who would sacrifice everything on the cross on our behalf and who now intercedes on the behalf of those who surrender their lives to him. Father, for those who are here who have not yet done that, they will never know the peace of Christmas unless they do. So please, Father, motivate their hearts. Move them in such a way that they can come to know the peace that we know comes only in you. We pray all this in the name of your Son, the greatest gift imaginable, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and everyone said, If you have a decision to make, you want that peace that comes only through Christ. This is your chance. Don't let it pass you by. Would you come as we stand and as we sing?